Here in Luke chapter 12, we are looking at being a dependent disciple. And today, Jesus gives us one final instruction on what a dependent disciple is. He instructs, be ready. Now, he's already taught to avoid hypocrisy, to avoid covetousness, to be careful about anxiety and worry in our lives. It's unique that all of these things are things that prevent us from being ready. If I'm busy fulfilling my covetous desires, well, I'm not going to be ready for the return of the Lord. If I'm busy being worried over the cares of today and tomorrow, well, I'm not going to be ready for the return of the Lord. So here he ends this teaching on what it is to be a dependent disciple with just that simple instruction, be ready. And I would begin this morning by simply asking, are you ready? If this were the crowning day, are you ready? If this were the day for you to meet the Lord, are you ready? What are we doing to be ready? Instead of worrying and instead of hypocrisy, instead of covetousness, we get two headings from these verses this morning. First, we are to be watching for the master. And second, we are to be wise to the mission. Verse 35 through 38 teaches us to be watching for the master. In parable form, Jesus commands his disciples to be ready, to be dressed for action, to be keeping their lamps burning. Notice again, verse 35, let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. His point being in the moment, there will be no time. There will be no time to go buy oil. There will be no time to trim the wick. Your lamp must be burning already so that in the moment it is ready. You're always on call as the servant of Jesus Christ. Here he says, have your loins gird, meaning be dressed and ready to go always. Probably a command easier understood by Jewish culture than you and I now. In Exodus chapter number 12, verse number 11 we find a reference to the first Passover. And in this first Passover, Israel was to eat and take of the Passover feast ready to go. Now, where were they going? Anybody remember? Already sleeping? They were leaving Egypt. And were they going to go slowly? Were they going to go gradually? I mean, there's a large group. I guess you could make somewhat of a case for that. But they were going to go. When it was time to go, they were going to go. They were enslaved there. They'd been trying to get out of there. The plagues, Moses and Pharaoh, all of this. But God said, when it's time to go, I want you to go. So I want you to eat ready. Have your lamps burning. Have your belt on. Be dressed and ready to go. This is what Jesus references here. As he says, let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. Well, how are we to do this now? I think 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 lays this out well. Peter writes, wherefore... Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's, it's a mental thing. It's, a, it's a, a spiritual heart thing. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be ready. Verse 36, he instructs like a servant whose master is to return from a wedding any time now. He says, and you yourselves, like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. As a young man, 
we had a pretty open door policy in my house, had my own room there. But as I got older, you know, mom would appreciate me shutting the door to change clothes or whatever it is you were to do. But even then, probably best to not always to lock the door. And it never failed any time mom or dad would come and knock on the door, wiggle the handle and the door was locked. And I didn't immediately come or immediately say, I'm changing clothes. Wait a minute. What did they always presume? I was up to something. Jesus illustrates here, be ready. The master could return at any moment from this wedding he's gone to. He's given this parable, this story. And he says, even if he comes in the middle of the night, you be ready to open the door when he gets there. Open immediately. Don't make him wait. I think it's unique for us to consider how we might anticipate a return based upon our current actions. When I was a little boy and played baseball, loved playing baseball. It was, uh, wasn't Dixie Youth Baseball. That's what they play around here in Little League Baseball. It was Babe Ruth Baseball. And I was little and dumb, you know. I'm big and smart now, but I was little and dumb. In my mind, Babe Ruth might show up, you know. That was, it was Babe Ruth Baseball, sanctioned. And they gave us hats, you know, and shirts. We had to get our own pants and socks and shoes. But you'd put on your uniform, you'd be ready to go. You'd get home from school and you'd get out in the yard and hand in the glove, you know, standing out there and waiting on something. What am I waiting on? Dad to get home from work to take me to the game. I was a little boy. I couldn't get there on my own. Oh, I was so anxious. I was filled with such anticipation because it was going to be fun. I was going to see my friends. It was going to be a great time. I was going to get to play baseball. Probably going to hit a home run tonight. I never did. I usually struck out. But as a little kid, you forgot those things. And that afternoon is Tuesday. It's 4.30. The game's at 6. You had to be there by 5.30. Dad got home at 5. You were in the yard. You were dressed. You were ready to go. Couldn't wait for Dad to get home. There were other times when Mom would catch me doing something I shouldn't be doing. And she'd say, you go up to the front room and you sit on the couch there. We had this couch. Only company could sit on this couch in this room. Did y'all grow up with a room like this? We were very rich people. For some reason, we could allot some square footage to just this place that company could sit in and the kids weren't allowed to. And the company never seemed to sit there. They always sat on my couch in the den. It was more fun. Probably smelled better. But she'd say, you go sit right there and you wait till your dad gets home and he'll handle you. Oh, That was different than the baseball day. I hope dad didn't come home. Maybe I'll have to work late tonight. Always tried to get it dark and me fall asleep before he got there. Because, you know, dad may come home in a, in a rush, in a fuss, and have to discipline the child and not be in a very good mood about it. But if he comes home and the kid's already asleep, he's going to look at the mother and say, well, he's already asleep, I don't want to wake him up. <laughs> Whatever we're doing changes the level of anticipation for the return of the one we're waiting for. Is it much different for us as we return, wait on the return of Christ? Those who obey his command, he says here, would find later a unique reward. Look at verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down at meat and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. What a unique reward. Verse 37 says, the ones he comes and finds ready, he will serve them. 
R.C. Sproul explains, Jesus is obviously applying this to himself. When he comes, those who are found ready, who are busily engaged in their work, having set their hearts on the kingdom of God and not to the acquisition of material possessions, will be rewarded. When the king comes, the king will serve his faithful people. So verse 38 tells us not to give up on his return. If he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch, the Jewish day was divided into three eight-hour periods. We, we were a little similar in our day now. How many hours of sleep do you try to get at night? Yeah. Some of you try to get six. <laughs> you get five and a half. Some of you are blessed and you get ten. Good for you. I hope your back hurts when you wake up. <laughs> Please forgive me for that one. And then you usually work for about how many hours? Eight. And that leaves how many hours in a day? Eight. It's very similar to our culture. First watch, third watch, or second watch, third watch. Jesus' point being here that when something's supposed to happen in a certain amount of time, it doesn't happen in a certain amount of time, we assume that it's just not going to happen. And that brings to mind at-home COVID tests. I always think these things aren't going to do what they're supposed to do. So he says, blessed are the servants who even are ready in the second watch and who are even ready in the third watch. They've waited that first eight hours and the master didn't return. They've waited the second eight hours. The master didn't return. They've waited into this third set of eight hours. And then finally the master came and they didn't give up. They were still waiting. Be ready, he says. According to Scripture, we know for sure that Jesus is coming. Given our place in history, we also know that each day we are closer than ever to His return. These things are sure. I don't know when He's going to return, but I'm closer to that return than Paul was. I don't know when He's going to return, but I believe Him on His Word when He said, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He ends here with a caution in his parable, in verse 39 and 40. And this know that if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh in an hour when you think not. Anybody here ever been robbed? None of you have ever been robbed? Okay, one of you have been robbed. Dane, if you'd have known that the robber was coming ahead of time, what would you have done differently? Yeah. Empty-handed? No. no, not empty-handed. Just to be clear. Would you have stopped him? Yes. yes. You'd have been prepared. Jesus is coming back just as unexpectedly as a thief might come and rob us. So be ready. Peter asked for clarification then. In verse 41, and Jesus gives two principles from the parable he's just shared. Then Peter said to him, Lord, speaketh thou this parable unto us or even to all? But that's a good question to ask because all throughout this gospel account, Jesus would talk to his disciples and teach some things. He would talk to the multitude and teach some things. And there seems to be a little bit of a differentiation between what he would teach based off who he's speaking to. So Jesus begins to answer Peter's question and he he answers it, but it's, it's almost indirectly. In verses 41 through 44, he addresses 
still the, 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 uh, the, the disciples, not yet the multitude, and he says, faithful servants will be rewarded when the master returns. Notice verse 42. And the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. So faithful servants will be rewarded. And then the negative then would be 45 through 48. The unfaithful would be punished. But if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth in his coming, and shall begin to beat the men's service and the maid's service, and to eat and to drink and be drunk, and the Lord of that servant will come in that day, when he overlooketh not for, when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did not commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, to them he will ask the more. When I was a young man, dad would leave in the morning and say, do this before I get home. Summertime, you're not in school. Like mow the yard before I get home. We didn't have cell phones, kids. I know that's weird to think about. Didn't even have internet. I did have a Super Nintendo entertainment system. <laughs> but often to be entertained by this entertainment system, I had to bang on it and blow on it like this, put it in crooked, shove it in there, push reset. And then it might come on and do, 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 do. It was fun. But dad would say, mow the yard before I get home. And I would think to myself, well, it's early in the morning. He won't be home till tonight. I got time. And I would play my Nintendo entertainment system until lunch. And my sister would say, you better go mow the yard. I'm, a, I'm in the middle of a game. Back then, you couldn't save your game. You have to know this too. So the machine had to stay on. To trick your mother, you would leave the machine on, lay something over it so she couldn't see the lights on the front, turn the TV off, the video game still stayed on, mom thought it was off and she'd leave it alone. Otherwise, mom would see it on, you'd be somewhere doing something else. She would think, oh, you've forgotten, left it on. I'll be helpful and turn this off for you. Hours worth of work down the drain. So I would say to my sister, no, I'll get to it in a minute. I'm right in the middle of a level. I've got to beat this level. And then I'll go mow the yard. Well, without the internet and without getting up early in the morning to check the weather by listening to Fox 5 Eyewitness News meteorologists. Do you remember? Ken Cook. Yeah. Well. I didn't know if it was going to rain. Nowadays, I could look at my cell phone and say, Okay, it's supposed to start raining at three. I better mow the yard at one because dad's going to get home at five. So I could play till one, then mow the yard, and I'll get the yard mowed. I'd be sitting there mowing the yard, and I'd hear rumble, rumble from the sky. And then I'd see the rain fall, lightning flash, and think, oh, Lord, let it quit raining in time for me to mow the yard before dad gets home. And then I'd go beat my sister. No, no, no. That's in the Bible, not, not, not me. He said when the... When he doesn't do his work, and then he go beats the maidservants and the men servants. Unique story Jesus tells here. The illustration of the beatings does bring a principle to us from Scripture. Degrees of rewards for the righteous, degrees of punishment for the unrighteous. 
there will likely be some who live and die and either never have or have a shallow gospel presentation given to them. For those of you sitting here today hearing about Jesus saving you from your sins and you go to hell anyways, hell will be hotter for you than, than one who didn't have that opportunity. This is the idea we get from this. Then on the other hand, we see that as servants, if we're faithful and watching for the master, the roar will be greater for those than for those who are unfaithful. Sobering to think about, but it's truth. As we think through all of this, I want to share with you a, a good reminder. Phil Riken wrote this. He says, Christianity is not a religion for faithful servants, but a gospel for unfaithful servants. Do you understand? We often think of if I go to church, if I dress right, if I live right, keep my nose clean, sing the songs, say the prayers, read the scriptures, if I've been baptized when I'm supposed to be, if I get married to just the right person, if I never get in trouble in business, if I live my whole life and keep my reputation and my testimony, surely God will be pleased by me. But many who live and die just like that, ethical, moral, the church might even call them holy. Oh, they were a saint. God might say, you know, I never knew that guy. He lived and he died. It seemed like people thought he was a good guy, but I never knew him. See, Christianity is not a religion for faithful servants. It's actually a gospel for unfaithful servants. You're going to mess up. You're going to fall. Now, I'm not endorsing you doing that on purpose. But I do want to endorse you picking up and starting over and trying again. Well, I failed today. Well, God gave you tomorrow. His mercies are renewed every morning. Why? Because this is a gospel for the unfaithful. Why did Jesus have to instruct his followers to be dependent disciples? And one of the instructions was, but be ready. Because he's going to go away. And it's the tendency of when the cat's away, the mice will play. Oh, I've got time. Well, he's not here, so I don't have to do what he says. I can do whatever I want. There's a case to be made for that in Acts 1. Jesus ascends to heaven and the angel says to them, go and do what he's told you. And what did he tell them? Go and wait for power. He said, go and wait for power. That's what Jesus told them to do. So they went to the upper room to wait for power and they prayed. And in their praying, what else did they decide to do? Anybody remember? Replace Judas. They said, well, Judas is no longer one of us, so let's replace Judas. Judas. Did Jesus tell them to replace Judas? Did the Holy Spirit lead them to replace Judas? You could kind of maybe try to make that point, except for Acts 2. What happens in Acts 2? Holy Spirit comes. So the Holy Spirit hadn't led them to replace Judas in Acts 1 because the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet in Acts 1. And so they did a human, a human thing. They cast lots. The lot fell on the guy, and they said, You're one of the apostles. What do we later find? Who was supposed to replace Judas? Saul of Tarsus. They wouldn't have picked him had he been in the room and the lot had cast on him. Funny how that goes. Go and do what's been told. And be ready. Watchful for the master. And then wise to the mission. The church has an infection it's spreading and it's growing. And the infection is, 
I would call it a social experiment, but it's become a, so, a societal norm. And the infection is that everything that is peace, love, and harmony is good, and everything else is bad. And it comes across as this should just be black and white, but when you try to make everything peace, love, and harmony, you find yourself more in the gray than you ever do in the black and the white. So there's instruction from Jesus here. First, to be watchful for the master. He's going away, but he's going to return. And while you're waiting, if you're going to be doing what he wants you to do, being a prepared servant, you're going to have to be wise to the mission. And he lays out clearly here that the mission is not as human nature would have it to be were we to plan it out. In fact, in verse 49 through 53, he's clear. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be separation. 49, he says, I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I if it be already kindled? Wait, that doesn't sound right. Do we read this wrong? Have we misunderstood the Bible? We think that the church's job is to be the peace in the community. Often, in many ways, the church should actually be the fire in the community. Talking to one of our young men in the lobby before church, and he was, we're talking about the forming of the Roman Catholic Church, Constantine, Constantinople. That's a good song. <laughs> Alexander the Great. And we made this conclusion, anytime the government and the church seem to work together, it's never been good in church history. It's usually when they're at odds with one another that the church has been doing what it's supposed to be doing. Anytime the church seems a little worldly or the world seems a little churchy, we're usually not obeying scriptures. Jesus says here, not I came to bring peace. Now we understand the end result is there will be peace, but it won't be until he returns. Between his leaving and his returning, he said, I came to send fire. And then he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. How am I straightened until it be accomplished? This was the baptism of the cross. And he warned his disciples that when men came to him, this would cause division in their families. Their families would begin to persecute them and drive them out. Verse 51, suppose ye that I am come to give peace on the earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five and one household divided, three against two, two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Two things will lead to this in life. One, it will be the infiltration of the gospel into the lives of pagans. Two, it will be the birth pangs of the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I feel like we're living in the world of verse 53 there. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against son, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Well, maybe that's been going on pretty while, pretty good while here, but. I saw in the news where some children in some big city took a road cone and beat a 72-year-old to death just for the fun of it. What? 
How did this happen? And then I think what comes next is, it's not some random person. I don't like my dad, so I'm just going to beat him to death. And I don't like my mom, so I'm just going to beat her to death. I don't like my daughter, so I'm going to kill her. Or I don't want my daughter, so I'm going to kill her. Jesus said, I I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring fire. I'm going to go be baptized on the cross for your remission. This won't bring unity. The Jews were split over this. The church was birthed through this. Heaven help us to be wise to this mission. To know what the end goal is. So that we can be operating appropriately day in and day out. If we think the goal is for you and I to bring peace on the earth now, well, well, we're going to compromise in a lot of areas just to be nice and to keep people happy. But if we understand the goal is that often in bringing the gospel to a pagan home, some will be redeemed, but some will not. And this will split that home. We know this going into it. I don't want to split any home. But I'd rather split it and some go to heaven than all of them go to hell. You must be wise to the mission. McDonald says here, this disproves the theory that Jesus came to unite all humanity, godly and ungodly, into a single universal brotherhood of man. Rather, he divided them as they have never been divided before. A unique thing has happened in America, and maybe in the world, but I can only tell in America. In 2020, we were confined to our homes. We were told to act a certain way to prevent getting a disease and you know, I think people who were leading that did the best they could with what they knew at the time. I got very sick. Aunt Redonna got sick, almost died. I mean, it was a serious business. Through that, the church had to decide, what are we going to do? And I can only speak to our group, but initially we said, well, let's be careful. And we, we stopped meeting together. Then I got so sick of not seeing you people. <laughs> and you said, I can't wait to see you. Actually, nobody said that. I told myself you were saying this. And we said, well, we'll at least come to the parking lot. And so we went to the parking lot and got a loudspeaker. And we could wave to each other from the backs of trucks. And it was fun. And then Mother's Day rolled around. And some men came to me and said, preacher, if we don't have church on Mother's Day, hell might break loose. Okay, follow me. I've been looking for a reason anyways. So as good Baptists in the South do, we defied the government. And we loved on our mamas. And we had... We we gathered for church and we just never stopped after that. What this led to, I think, and and we were we're just a a, a regular old case. Nothing specific happened with us, but you can study all across the country and even in Canada. Some churches were persecuted. Some churches stuck to following the government. Some churches decided, well, no, we're going to disobey the government. This whole thing happened. People never came back to church. You know, it just... We looked around and we watched this and we said, never before has, in, in my lifetime, has like church and state been so polarized. Never before has it been so distinct. Who is the church? It was, a, it was a very unique thing. Now that that's basically behind us, and I know it's not completely behind us, but for the most part, now in 2021, now in 2022, looking ahead to 2023, we're starting to see some craziness happen. I saw this weekend that the United States government sent two representatives to France for some official 
gathering, both of them were men dressed like women and were proud to do so in government uniforms representing the United States government. And I thought back to myself, it was just a few years back, we'd have put them in a mental institute and said, these people are crazy and off their rockers and need to be medicated because they're not thinking straight. And now we put them in government positions and sent them to other countries to say, we're going to work with you on this. And I already told you the 72-year-old beating in the streets or whatever's happened there. What's the point I'm trying to make here? More and more, we're getting a distinct view of who is the church and who is not. And then we're beginning to see all this other happen as the church becomes this distinct group of people. Now, this means for some hard living for you if you're going to live true. Because just me saying what I said about government officials made some of you uneasy. Some of you, you said, about time. You're going to have to decide, where am I going to be on this? And not just with your government, your neighbor, your family member, your blood relatives. Where am I going to be on this? And how am I going to live my life? Because you're going to have to be wise to the mission. If you're going to be watchful for the master, ready for the return of Christ, as a faithful servant, dependent disciple, you're going to have to say, where am I at in this thing? Am I taking the route of the church with the church? Or am I going to separate myself from the church and just be comfortable in the world around me? Now, I'll be honest. I hoped that I would live and die and never see this happen in my life. I didn't wish it on my kids, but, but I've had talks with some of you as adults and we've said things like, boy, I hate to see the world my kids have to grow up in or my grandkids have to grow up in. But we're in the world, folks. We're in that world now. It's odd just to see everything that's going on around us. It's not a universal brotherhood of man. It's the church and the world as polar opposites. And there's no room for fence riding. So verse 54 through 59 then, he says, be aware and be ready. And here Jesus does turn his attention to the multitudes. Up to this point, he's been talking to just his disciples. But here he gives a message to the entire group. He says, you need to be sensitive to interpret the things that you are seeing. They had seen his ministry Many were unable to recognize him as the Messiah, though they had seen his ministry. And so he points out some things to them. Verse 54. And, and maybe with everything I just said, you sat there thinking to yourself, I don't know, I disagree with you. This, this doesn't seem right. This is not me trying to salt that wound for you, but this is me sharing the rest of Jesus' sermon, which I hope will also be convicting to you to help you come around to what I've previously said. He says in verse 54, you could tell when rain's coming. He said to the people, when you see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway you say, there is a shower, and so it is. Like I was, as a kid, I was taught, red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in morning, sailor's warning. Meaning there might be a storm coming there. But it's pretty, I mean, pretty obvious around here, even if I didn't have my cell phone to say it's going to rain at 3 o'clock, you can sort of tell what's going to come there. Jesus said, you, you all can tell this to the multitudes. Verse 55, he said, you can tell when it's going to get hot. When you see the south wind blow, you say there will be heat and it cometh to pass. And then in verse 56, he kind of jabs them as he says, you can tell when rain is coming. You can tell when heat is coming, but you can't discern spiritual signs. You hypocrites. 
You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? Now, our time and their time then is different, and we need to make sure we're aware of this as we cross the principalizing bridge. What was it like in their town then? What is it like in our town now? Well, in their town then, what is Jesus meaning when he says you can't determine the time? He's saying Messiah is here. The kingdom is now, and you're not even aware of that. Now, he's gone away. He started the kingdom. We are the church. We are to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and make disciples as we build the kingdom. And then we're to be looking for his return. Well, same application could be made to us now as to them then. You could tell when it's going to rain. You could tell when it's going to get hot or when it's going to get cold. You can see the face of the sky and of the earth, but you can't discern this time. You're unable to be wise to the mission. You don't know what it is that we're trying to accomplish. You're unable to see what's going on right in your midst. These people were being offered the kingdom and they weren't responding properly. You and I are troubled to look around and see the spiritual crisis that we're in. Warren Wiersbe wrote, how tragic that men today can predict the movements of the heavenly bodies, split atoms, and even put man on the moon, but they are blind to what God is doing in the world. They know how to get to the stars, but they do not know how to get to heaven. Our educated world possesses a great deal of scientific knowledge, but not much spiritual wisdom. Jesus makes one more point here in verse 57 through 59. He uses court here. He says, if you are sued and drug into court, you'll do whatever you can to avoid prison. Notice that. Verse 57. Yes, and why even of yourselves judge you not what is right? When, when thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, as thou art in the way, give diligence that thou mayest be delivered from him, lest he hail thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison. Well, that's the truth, isn't it? And do whatever you can do to stay out of jail. Brings this into an eternal thought here. In verse 59, as he says, because once you're in jail, you might not ever get out. I tell thee, thou shalt not depart thence till thou hast paid the very last might. So you're jailed, you owe a debt, and you're not going to get out till you've repaid that debt. So you might not ever get out. So what is Jesus' message to this crowd? Just as someone who would try to get away from the lawyer and try to get away from the judge and try to stay out of prison, we should be trying to get right with God with a similar urgency. If I was dragged into court, I'd want to be right with that judge. I'd want that judge to be favorable before me. I've never had to stand before a judge, but I, I did go to court one time. Somebody stole from me, and I went to court to look him in the eye. I'm mad at him, bitter, as a Christian shouldn't be, right? And I sat right over here and they brought the guy in. He was in shackles. He'd done something worse than what he'd done to me. And they brought him in and dismissed my case. I was so mad. Oh, charge him for both. Charge him for what he did and charge him for mine. But they, they dismissed him stealing from me. And then they found him guilty of the other. But I remember leaving there that day thinking to myself, whew, I never want to be drugged before that judge. He has power. Just with one word, you're going to jail or you're going home. The judge of the universe has more power than that. 
But for whatever reason, it's hard for us in our finite minds to think that someday we, we, we're going to be called into account before him. So we don't always feel like we need to be ready. Jesus reminds this crowd here, God's judgments are eternal. Repent of your sins and commit to him in full surrender. So what is Jesus' message? Be ready. Be watching for the master. Be wise to the mission. I think too often in sermons like this, we easily put off the urgency. We convince ourselves that things aren't going to happen as quickly as the preacher seems to think they are. You know how I know? Because as a kid, I sat through lots of sermons like this and thought to myself, I don't know. These guys are old and they've been preaching this a long time. Jesus could come at any moment. He ain't come yet. We begin to tell ourselves, uh, the preacher's just worked up about it this week. He'll be on to something else next week. I don't want to let my foot off the throat of your urgency here just yet. Robert Murray McShane used to ask people, do you believe that Jesus is coming today? And if they replied in the negative, he would say, then you'd better be ready for he's coming at an hour when you think not. You sit here this morning and think, I don't know, chances are a little worked up. I mean, Jesus ain't going to come right now. He's probably not going to come today. He's probably not going to come in my lifetime. Well, then we're basically right for it. He said, coming in an hour when you think not. We must be ready. Would you stand and pray?